Good morning, and this is John Hulsman reporting in on Tuesday, as we always do, on the culture, the things that really matter, and having a look at them. And this, as we continue down our 60s albums narrative, albums you must listen to before you die, part two, Pet Sounds, Paul McCartney's favorite album, and frankly, probably mine, although Revolver by the Beatles is neck and neck, one of these two, by Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, primarily Brian Wilson, but we'll get to that in a minute. But all four of the albums we're going to look at in this section, we've looked at Arthur Lee and Love and the Majestic Forever Changes. Now we're going to look at Pet Sounds. Then we're going to look at If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears by the Mamas and the Papas, and then end with The Doors' eponymous first album. All four of them are kind of linked together, and I think it's important that we see them that way. Um, because the, what links them together is the concept of freedom. And this links Arthur Lee and Love to the shared kaleidoscopic drama of the 60s. More than that, the concept of freedom becomes the golden thematic thread running through the tapestry of this exhilarating and endlessly confusing decade, making sense of what seems at first glance to be a collage without meaning, a series of dots on the wall rather than a pointillist painting. Perhaps Thomas Jefferson is to blame with his troublesome adaptation of Locke in the Declaration of Independence when he talks about our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first two have been hardly uncontroversial, but the last, the pursuit of happiness, is the most quintessentially American and the most open to interpretation. How does one define such a freedom? Freedom in the American context has always been determined by the eye of the beholder, it has meant very different things to very different groups of Americans. It's not too much to say that these differences over a seemingly innocuous common good have determined the whole history of the country, from the clash over states' rights versus abolition that fueled the American Civil War to the struggles over the civil rights movement a hundred years later. More than any other people, Americans have venerated the concept of freedom. Unbeknownst to them, they have meant very different conceptual things by it, all the while using a seemingly innocent common word. Rarely was this truer than during the device of 1960s, and in a very real way it was the relative, historically speaking, lenience of the era, the good times, that led to the heated debate over what freedom actually meant. The 60s generation was, materially and socially, perhaps the least constrained in history. Yet far from slaking their social thirst, many of the time came to perceive any restrictions placed upon their freedom, however defined, as intolerable. That is not to say there weren't real monsters during that era, as is true for any other. They did threaten their hard-won liberty. This was true at both the macro and micro level. Vietnam really was horrendous. The civil rights struggle really did involve inalienable rights. And Brian Wilson really did have to throw off the shackles of his overbearing tyrannical father to achieve a degree of creative liberty. But more was going on here than that. For the 60s generation seemed to view their relative freedom, however differently as they defined it, as merely a teaser, as the precursor to some elusive, more profound state of being that was being denied to them. Absolute freedom became the nirvana, the unreachable goal that both animated their anger and fired their collective imagination. The very different aspects of this struggle unite the four records we're looking at right now. The formation of the countercultural itself was the result of a perfect storm of material well-being, demography, and a common youthful disdain for the conformism of the just-ended 1950s. The baby boomers were surely the most affluent generation in centuries, 
certainly since the founding of the United States, unimaginable economic prosperity allowed them to worry about broader concerns than their immediate economic and personal survival, as had been the fate of the great generation, World War II generation. They had the time and the energy to think beyond that. If the boomers were the richest generation in American history, making them an instant political and social force, their vast numbers cemented their status as an immediate counterforce to their elders in American life. Simply put, the unusual demographics of the post-war baby boom meant that the emerging youth culture could not be ignored politically, commercially, or culturally. This outsized generation, its vast wealth, and a common and characteristic youthful desire to overturn what many saw as the turgid conformist world of their elders in the 1950s were the three pillars underlying the youth movement and the potent counterculture it created. And this uniquely American fixation found its locus in California, the California rhapsodized by Steinbeck and Muir and Chuck Berry. The ultimate canvas for the realization of endless freedoms, the furthest point west with its God-given climate, where even middle-class workadaddies could live like Renaissance princes. It was almost inevitable that ahead of the rest of the country, its impossibly blessed citizens would begin to look around saying, what now? During that time and at that place, a number of odd, tortured, charismatic souls came to learn a great deal about freedom, why it mattered, what it cost, and how it can be abused. In the amber glow of the unbearable, hopeful California of the 1960s, rock musicians and poets at the cutting edge of their craft celebrated in song the throwing off of what they saw to be the conformist shackles of the country, embracing a radical creed that celebrated social, political, and personal freedom above all else. They celebrated freedom as the magic elixir, essential for pursuing the unconventional to reach the truly creative. In the end, they had to sacrifice a great deal to attain it, choosing to uphold freedom despite constant pressures from family, friends, producers, and the establishment, both entertainment and political, to just go along with things as they were. For each in their own way was aiming at the Greek notion of praxis, the unity of thought and action. Thinking freely was only the first step. A man had to act on these thoughts to be truly worthwhile. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, Arthur Lee of Love, and Jim Morrison of the Doors all wrote about this developing creed as they had already internalized its glittering possibilities. Brian had thrown off the constraints of his domineering father and had taken creative control of his band. His vision of freedom, above all else, was about the freedom to pursue artistic creativity to control the direction his genius took him. In the mid to late 1960s, in the specific milieu of California, then at the cutting edge of the ongoing freedom experiment, and in the specific time of the youth movement, the front line displaying freedom's manifold benefits and perils, Brian and the others managed to harness freedom to create masterworks, pet sounds, if you can believe your eyes and ears, forever changes in the doors, different than anything heard before. Brian was the first to break from convention, fighting both his producer father and the other members of, his, of the Beach Boys, including his brothers and his particularly malevolent cousin, to seize control of his own artistic destiny. Having won that battle, Brian was under constant and immense pressure from Capitol Records not to innovate, to keep producing the pleasant surf music that had made the group famous and Capitol rich to give the people an endless supply of more of the same. It took moral courage, especially for a man not naturally possessed of such strength, to turn his back on both his family and his employers 
But Brian, at great psychic cost and with everything on the line, persevered. Pet Sounds, the result of his declaration of artistic independence, is commonly thought one of the greatest records ever made. But in its beauty, Pet Sounds is a lament of the loss of a simpler and purer time, the idealized Eisenhower era of Brian's dreams. Freedom may have been in short supply, but life was simple, understandable, and comfortable. For Wilson is not so much ambivalent about freedom as homesick. There is real irony in that he worked so hard and took on all comers to break the mold of pop songcraft and employ the most sophisticated production ever seen so he could write an album's worth of paeons to simpler times. Wouldn't it be nice? Caroline, no. I know there's an answer and that's not me. Are songs written about an adult who uses his freedoms to recreate an idealized childhood? The tension that makes it all work is that Brian's missing and missed adolescence sat smack dab in the middle of the supposedly repressive 1950s. The greatness of Pet Sounds lies in orally overlaying the 50s and the 60s. Without the more socially radical decade, Brian would not have had the freedom to make a record celebrating the simplicity of bygone days. In its musical and thematic complexity, Pet Sounds towers above the recordings of its own time. And you can see this, that Brian worked on this record while the Beach Boys went out on tour to Japan. No longer able to tour with them already, the psychosis in Brian was getting hold. Having freaked out on a plane, he decided to stay home. And while he was home, and the Beach Boys were out touring to great success in Japan, he in essence created a record on his own, where he was the auteur at the center of the record, and they were merely instruments in the record coming back. And this is really the key to understanding what Brian was about that this was a solo album where, much like Arthur Lee, he used the more famous name of his bandmates to put forward a record that was, in essence, a form of autobiography. And I think it's interesting that they are, are incredibly similar in some ways when you look at them, uh, that both of them wanted to make a statement on their own, hiding within the greater band that was more famous at the time, but using that band as instruments in their own symphony. And it's a very similar process that they went under at a very similar time. Uh, the Beach Boys were the first of the California bands to emerge, challenging the Beatles in 1964 with their uniquely American interpretation of surf music, celebrating the California beach lifestyle, which up to then had been nothing more than an amusing fad. Brian effortlessly conjured up an innocent and wholesome image of sun, sand, and surf, of girls in polka dot bikinis hanging out with surfer dudes by a blazing fire, after the halcyon day in the endless summer. It was potent and evocative, as it was a step away from the conformity of the Eisenhower era, moving toward its celebration of both nature and especially the individual. However, as the Beatles radically progressed with each album, with health being succeeded by the infinitely more complex rubber soul, to be succeeded again by Revolver and then Sgt. Peppers, spurred on by this artistic competition, Brian felt the need to tr transcend the simple surf music that had made the Beach Boys famous and Capitol Records rich. Meeting obstacles at every turn in his effort to make a more complicated record, true to his own vision of artistic freedom, Brian was forced to take on his others and his cousin, his abusive producer father, and not least Capitol Records, who cared less about Brian's growing artistic yearnings and kept demanding merely another surf record, keeping up with the Beatles in sales, rather than artistry. 
And in fact, when cousin Mike Love came off the road with the other members of the band after their successful Asian tour and first listened to Brian's work on Pet Sounds, he dismissively said when trying to make out the obscure background noises on the record, who's going to hear this shit? The ears of a dog? Brian is ever looking for creative inspiration, latched onto this put down, finding in it the ironic title for his masterpiece. Capitol Records, if anything, was even less supportive. It considered not releasing Brian's opus at all. When they did, it was without enthusiasm. The record had to make its way by word of mouth, as Capitol only half-heartedly publicized the very different work. It was in this cauldron of almost unbearable pressure that Brian realized pet sounds, but at a, ter but at a terrible price. And this is the point to make, that indeed Brian was having to deal with this at the very moment that the others were telling him not to go ahead because they didn't want him to be creative. They didn't want him to be free. They didn't want him to realize this amazing, well-produced record, a yearning for the 1950s, even as he used the freedoms of the 1960s to remember a childhood that he absolutely never had. And I think that this is the amazing thing about Pet Sounds, that it was made at this tremendous cost and tremendous price and yet when you listen to it, there's, there's absolutely nothing like it. And it is this yearning, mournful, wistful quality, but the production of what is really a symphony, a symphony. And it's just so more complicated than anything being done at the time. And Brian deserves tremendous credit for making this, although it really was the beginning of the end. He moved on from this to try to make Smiley Smile and Smile, the next great record and in the process due to an overuse of LSD and schizophrenia and psychosis, he broke down and indeed never made it again and collapsed into his bedroom for the better part of the next decade and only completed Smile many, many years later, um, where it's an interesting but deeply flawed record, um, kind of mirroring his collapse. But here you see Brian at the height of his game, all the producer ability, using the Beach Boys' voices as instruments, making this homage to the 50s with the freedom of the 60s and creating a teenage symphony to God, as he would later describe Good Vibrations, the single that came just after this. And if you put together Pet Sounds and Good Vibrations, Brian Wilson had as good a mid-60s as the Beatles, and that is saying literally everything. Although it was just a supernova that burst onto the scene and then collapsed, Brian had had his moment. And this moment is something you must listen to before you die. I very much hope you enjoyed this, trying to put Pet Sounds into the context of Brian's broader search for artistic freedom. Whereas Arthur Lee looked at our individual freedom, Brian is out for artistic freedom, having thrown off the shackles of Mike Love, his abusive father, and had a moment with musicians from around LA to make what is in essence a symphony to God. And it still sounds like that. Please do enjoy this album, maybe the greatest album ever made, and see the contrast of using the 1960s in freedom to lament the childhood and the innocence lost in the 1950s. And that's the key to the record. One of the first great concept albums and literally one of the one or two best records ever made. I think Gun to My Head, along with Revolver, they'd be joint first for me. Enjoy it very much, and we will move on in the future. Uh, for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And please do give the $70 to our little local newspaper to the world so we can continue to look at the culture, the things that really matter. Enjoy. <laughs>